involved. Gary, thank you so much. Running live stream, running sound. Uh, it's much more than what's just done up here on the stage. We're going to have some time to pray. Um, there's, n there's nothing more telling of our spiritual condition as believers than our prayer life. You can know all the doctrines, you can, you can recite all the theologies, but what's done between you and God in a moment of prayer in your life of prayer cannot be overstated. No one is so good or so bad at prayer that they cannot be more consistently in prayer. Some of the most influential people in my life have demonstrated for me what prayer really looks like. Continuous prayer, gracious prayer, so we want to take time to do that. Can't, can't be overlooked, can't be overstated, especially when there's so much going on within our church. Brother Dale has some, uh, some people to remember as we get ready to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Remember Ann Bullock? Ann has a knee replacement surgery. I believe it's the second week in December. But until that time, she's in a tremendous amount of pain. Her knee is bothering so bad that she can't get out and about makes it hard to go do the tests to get ready for the surgery so would you pray for Ann Bullock Ron Coley has an MRI this week you remember he had a fall just a week or so two weeks ago and they need to see what some of the lasting damage or what's causing some of his pain might be Bob Hooker is getting ready for radiation treatments he's been doing the pre-treatments he will be starting that soon that's a nine-week process so pray for brother brother Bob Diana Long continues to recover. We need her ankle to get strong. We need her to get strong enough to get back up on that ankle and rehab. So be praying, praying for her as well. And tomorrow, would you please pray for Mission 405? Tomorrow is our Thanksgiving food distribution. We generally have more people that day. Just pray for safety for us, but most of all, pray that we'll be able to share the gospel in some way. Sometimes it's as quick as a smile or a kind word, uh, but help us to do that. I, I can tell you, Brother Isaac greets everybody that comes through there, so pray for Brother Isaac to, to have an opportunity just to show some joy in all of us as they come through, but make, make that a point of prayer, please, for us tomorrow. Yeah. Would you bow with me and pray? I'm going to give you a moment of prayer to pray for those who have been mentioned already. I'll give you a moment of prayer for yourself to ready your hearts and your minds for what we are about to receive. And then I'll lead us together and we'll dive into this morning's sermon. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are first and foremost. That you are God and that we are not. There are so many things that if I was in charge, Lord, it would be disastrous. If we were in charge, it would be nothing but chaos. Thank you that you are in control, that you're in charge. Those who are going through difficult times, whether it's through physical pain and suffering, emotional pain and suffering, those who are celebrating the release 
temporary relief of pain and suffering. We can all say together in one voice that you're sovereign. We pray for Miss Ann. We pray for Brother Ron. Pray for Brother Bob. We want to pray for Miss Diana. Pray for Pastor. We pray for Mission 405. We pray for, for Jeremy tonight. We'll be able to, to share the gospel with those who come. But Lord, help us not to overlook the fact that when we gather together to worship, it's not an audience of many. It's an audience of one. It's you. We gather to lift you up, to, to honor you, to praise you, to give you what you so rightfully deserve, which is the glory that you have extended to us to be able to carry with us and to share with others. God, my prayer is that this morning we would be comforted by your sovereignty, convicted by your grace. Help us not to, to, to become cold and callous to the world or to the situations or to the individuals in our lives. Lord, I pray that as we open your word and we dive into what you have communicated to us, I pray that we would listen for ourselves, not listen for someone else. There's such the, there, there's such a, it's, part, it's ingrained within us as, as individuals who are so concerned about how this should fit other people's lives, how this should change that person. If they would only just listen, this would correct all the situations going on with X, Y, or Z. Help us to lay that aside. Give us the grace to hear for ourselves the truth of your word, the majesty of your glory manifested to us through your Son and written down, preserved for us in the Scripture. Again, would you turn our heart's affection, our mind's attention upon you, that we may, after this is over, when this point in time ends, and it's time for us to resume our daily responsibilities that you have blessed us with, may we be found faithful to not neglect to meet together, to not neglect to worship together, to not neglect to study together, to grow together, and to minister to one another. I pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. I did get a chance to go over to Pastor Greg and Miss Sammy's house yesterday. I had some things to return to them that we borrowed back in the summertime, back in the fall, actually. Um, Found out that Pastor's been walking more so than he has recently, which has been great. Uh, Ms. Sammy said that he was able to do 30 minutes. I didn't get to talk to him. I'm sure he was resting. But he, got, he was able to walk for about 30 minutes, which is more so than what he's been able to do. But he kind of pushed himself um, a little bit more than what he's uh, been doing. So he's a little bit more tired recently. But I'm pretty sure um, before long he'll be running up the, the Philadelphia Museum of Art steps. Um, hands up in the air, ready to, to do his own rocky impersonation. Uh, so we look forward to, to having him back as well. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. If you don't, the, the, the text will be up on the screen. We're going to be back in Titus. We're going to finish up chapter 1, and then after chapter 1, it will be pretty quick. 
going through chapters 2 and 3. Because chapters 2 and 3 are the product of what has been founded and grounded in chapter 1. The, uh, what's most interesting to me is to know how throughout church history and just throughout our spiritual history as believers, there has been such an attack on the truth that is so plainly obvious. Because when, when you boil it down, Christianity is really quite simple. It's not easy, it's, but it's very simple. It is summed up in the greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's fleshed out through the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations by going, teaching, and baptizing, knowing that it's God who is sovereign. He has authority over all, and it's His sovereignty that we carry with us as our comfort, as our strength, as our footing. But Christianity is really quite simple. Trust the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. However, it is entirely impossible to do it on our own. Easy, not necessarily. Simple, yes. Possible in our own strength, not at all. In fact, there have been attacks upon this simple truth, honestly, since the beginning of man in the garden with Adam and Eve, rebelling, considering all the good that God had given to them, established for them, presented to them, and yet it wasn't good enough. They wanted more. Did it take God off guard? No. He had decreed that to happen in order to show us the true measure of his grace and his mercy and his love and his justice. But when we see here in Titus, verses 10 through 16, last week we spoke about what a pastor must be, what an elder must be, the biblical requirement for pastors and elders and church leaders. Not to be based on preference or opinion. And as Paul gets into this next portion, verses 10 through 16, he shows us a picture of those who are opposing true biblical doctrine and true godly living by trying to bring in their own ideas, bring in their own presuppositions, their own biases, their own traditions that have been passed down to them through generations. And so when we read here, this is again the, the, the final steps, the final groundwork for what is about to come in chapters 2 and 3. When we look at our salvation, good works, which is what chapters 2 and 3 are about, they are the fruit of our salvation. They are not the root of our salvation. The root of our salvation are all the things that we've already seen here just in the first introductory verses. It's grounded in Jesus Christ alone and in His, in his righteousness. Salvation is a Trinitarian act. The triune God is at, is at work in salvation. We cannot overstate the, the qualifications put upon pastors and elders because they are what mirror the character of Christ. So as we get into these next seven verses, we have to take into consideration the fact that in order to understand what we must affirm in the Christian life, the doctrines that we must affirm, we also have to understand our enemy a little bit in the sense that things that we need to avoid. What must be avoided? Did you know that the United States Secret Service has produced pamphlets over the years helping people and helping businesses be able to determine and detect 
counterfeit $100 bills. Shouldn't be a shock to us. A $100 bill is a lot of money. Uh, for some people, it's, it's a ton of money. For some people, it doesn't matter who it is. It's still a lot of money. One thing you don't want is to be guilty of receiving a counterfeit bill. You don't want to produce the counterfeit bill, but you certainly don't want to have the counterfeit bill given to you. But in order to do that, in order to understand and identify the counterfeits, you have to first study the real thing. The genuine bill itself. The feel of it. The look of it. The way in which it's produced. You have to understand, and it's, it's no shock that the United States Secret Service studies and understands the way in which the real thing has been comprised and has all the pieces that are necessary to make it a genuine, legitimate $100 bill in order to clearly identify what's fake. We're going to read here about people who are praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, on those who do not understand the genuine thing. Those who are so easily carried along by every wind of doctrine because it either tickles their ears or it gives them what they're most desiring, which is personal glory, selfish gain, when in reality the entire Christian life, again, it's simple. Deny yourself and follow Christ. These qualifications came for us, but Real quick, the pastors must be good moral reputation, be able to, under, be able to instruct and, and guide their families with uprightness, with holiness. And then in verse 9, must stick to sound doctrine. And although pastors and church leaders must meet these requirements to lead biblical churches, these characteristics are not uniquely reserved for pastors and church leaders only. Like I said last week, all Christians are called to pursue these qualifications as markers of personal holiness. And what's the purpose? Romans 8, verse 28 and 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of pursuing Christ? What's the purpose of following Jesus? The good there in verse 28, the greatest good you could ever receive, the greatest good I could ever receive is not the physical blessings of God, but it's the personal understanding of being, made in, being conformed into the image of God's Son. The greatest good you could ever be given is God himself. That's the blessing. Because holiness is the goal. Pursuing holiness. Following Christ. We cannot do that if we are simply listening to those whom we want to hear. Honestly, this is a generation in which we live in. The, the idea and the aspect of authority has completely and totally gone out the window for many people. Because of this. The great advances in technology that we have received and benefited from because of others who have been able to, to take what 
God has given them, the human intellect, and be able to, to combine all these things into what technology we have today, has also contributed to a whole bunch of apathy and false teaching. Because if I don't like what one person is saying here, I don't really have to go down the road anymore. I can just find them online. I can find someone who will at least communicate with authority. They'll, they'll say it in a, in a very dramatic way. They'll, they'll have music playing behind them when they say it, so it must, be, it must be the Holy Spirit moving. The idea of authority has virtually gone out the window when reality, authority has never been in greater demand than today. Because anybody can be an authority on anything. Anybody can have a TED Talk if you raise enough money and if you say enough of the right things. But when it comes to what is being said and the content of what's being said, what's the standard? What basis do we have to claim anything about any aspect of life? It has to be one singular objective truth. Truth cannot be subjective. It does not depend on what you believe, what your truth may be. Truth is not relative. Because what's to say my truth, which contradicts your truth, who's to say mine is wrong and yours is right? They can't both exist at the same time if they are entirely contradicting each other. In verses 10 through 16, though, in, in, in Titus, we see people who are walking contradictions. In fact, in verse 16, Paul says that they profess to know God, but they deny them by their works. Walking contradictions. Claiming one thing, but living in such a way that they don't really believe what they claim. I've mentioned before the, the four marks of a corrupt culture. I don't need to, to spend time rehashing those. But what happens when these four things, and there are many more, but these are the, the basis. What happens when these things begin to infiltrate the church? What happens when Christians begin to, to go on a tirade against one another simply because they believe something different than what others believe and they have to be right? I'm not saying that there's no need for correction. There is. Especially those who do not hold to the biblical truths affirmed through Scripture. But it is necessary. It is necessary to seek restoration and correction for the sake of being in the faith and having sound biblical doctrine that it might lead to godly living. How must believers respond when these things begin to infiltrate the church? Um, real quick, I was curious about this and just did a, a Google search. Nothing, nothing super deep, nothing like fancy or like fancy software or anything. And next slide. This, uh, this is the... This is not an exhaustive list, and this is strictly New Testament. It doesn't have to do with the Old Testament, even though there are numerous places in the Old Testament that affirm being on guard and alert and avoiding false teaching. But in the New Testament, these are numerous places in which the Scripture says you must be aware of and avoid false teaching. The only ones that aren't included... Um, in this list that I did were like 1 Corinthians because they had a whole lot of false teachings just in general. So Paul was, trying, was basically doing to them what he's warning other people to avoid. 
the, the letter of Philemon, uh, where Paul is addressing a man about restoring to himself uh, a former employee of his, a former slave of his. And then 1 Peter, where Christians are under such attack to where they are being punished for their beliefs in Christ. They're being oppressed and suffering for their faith in Christ. But again, this is not exhaustive. There are numerous places even within these, these books listed here. But 24 of the 27 books of the, books of the New Testament directly and explicitly addressing being aware of and avoiding false teachers, you better believe it's important. Why? Because in order to understand the true fakes, you have to study the genuine thing. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Paul starts with a three-letter word, for. It's not a fancy word. It's not a, a, a deep theological word. But it does help us to understand the continuation and the contrast of Paul's former argument. Back up to verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If you remember from last week, that phrase, to put what remained into order, is actually better understood and better translated as set what has been set straight what is crooked. It's the word that we get the word orthodontist from. But there are so many things. This church is very young, and so they need sound, biblical, God-ordained elders, pastors to lead them. Because there's a group of people who have come into this, come into this church who are completely and totally opposite of the qualifications for a biblical pastor. Verse 10, when he says, For this is a continuation of his former argument and a contrast of what true biblical church leadership looks like. Let's see what they are. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These are people who have arisen from within the church. The first thing that we need to understand here is that there's a picture of opposition. What I'm going to help us to kind of see and to understand, my, my sermon prep uh, for this uh, kind of took a complete and total direction, different direction, as I was finishing it up last night. Because as I began to read this passage and began to see what was truly going on within this, within this instruction of Paul to Titus, it became very clear to me what's known as 
It's known as a chiasm. That's a weird word, I know. It's an ancient literary structure used to help us narrow in on the one central truth of a text. Meaning that verses 10 and 16 are mirrors of each other. 11 and 15 will be similar mirrors. 12 and 14 in order to get us to the heart of what Paul is truly getting after, which is verse 13. Now, unlike modern-day Western Westerners, I guess, we tell stories, we communicate information in a linear way. A leads to B, leads to C, D is the end. Most stories, most movies that we watch, stories that we read are that way, linear. This is what's happening. Here's what's going on here, 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 here. The ancient structure of being able to communicate information was not always linear. In fact, in many ways, Jewish cultures spoke in roundabout ways to discuss what was really the heart of the point. I learned that not too recently that the Old Testament is, all, is, is a clear picture of that. Right? When God's people... We're beginning to be unfaithful. God sent Moses to give the Ten Commandments, but they rebelled. So what did he do? He appointed judges. Those judges were corrupt. Those judges did not follow the way of God. Some did, some didn't. So what did he do then? He gave kings to lead people, to be the rulers of those people, and to lead them in worship of God. But they failed. So he appointed prophets. And those prophets were communicators of God's true word. But what did the people do to the prophets? They killed them. There were the sacrifices that were originally ordained as well. But those sacrifices could only temporarily remove the stain of sin. So in all these different pictures that are being painted around the truth in order to get to the center of who God really is, who Christ is, Christ fulfilled the law. Christ is the good and righteous judge. He is the true king. He was the true prophet proclaiming the day of salvation. He was the sacrifice that all these things failed in their expression because they were not meant to communicate the truth of who God was because it was about Christ. So here, even in these verses, we need to narrow our sight into what the purpose is of what Paul is communicating. The picture of this opposition is based upon personal autonomy that these individuals wanted, insubordinate, rebellious. They were rebellious. They were empty talkers, deceivers. In fact, back up into, uh, into the qualifications, back in verse 6, when Paul says this is what those who have wives and those who have children, these are how they must conduct their families. Their children who claim to be believers must not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. If you have children who claim to be believers... They must not be walking contradictions as these people are. Insubordinate, deceivers, empty talkers, and then more specifically, those who have arisen from the circumcision party. Those who are Jews. Not all Jewish Christians at this time, but the Jewish Christians who were twisting the words of God. For there are many who are insubordinate. In verse 16, these are the ones who profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. 
Other places in which Paul has addressed the same thing. If you uh, go back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Chapter 3 of Galatians, he continues, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and was crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by a hearing with faith? There were numerous people who claimed to be Christians of the Jewish persuasion, of, of, of Jewish history and heritage, who were trying to claim that circumcision and these works that were passed down through the Jewish, through the Jewish heritage, those were essential to the essential aspects of salvation. And Crete was no different. These people were trying to arrive, these people were trying to overthrow, and in fact, they, they were, if you look at um, the personal autonomy here, they wanted to do things their way, based on their own traditions, based on their own authority. And in fact, the audacity is to say that we are people of God, we are God's chosen people, but we get to set the terms for who is and who isn't in the kingdom of God. Paul says, this is not the case. You need to avoid this. He even says uh, in verse 11, they must be silenced because there is poison. There is poison that is entering into the church, this poison of contention. It first started internally. There are a lot of external issues. There are a lot of external issues that we face today that, that Titus was facing back then. People coming from outside of the church, claiming all kinds of things. In fact, there's, there's a man who was a, he was a, a prophet of, of Crete who is claiming things like Cretans are all liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. There are all kinds of external attacks, but these are the ones that Paul is saying, address the ones that are coming from within. Those who claim to be believers, but their, their words and their actions do not line up. This is an invasive maneuver for false teachers to invade with their own personal ideas, with their own personal autonomy, with their own personal authority, and to begin to infect the people of God. This is not new. Again, Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were there throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, Jewish believers, who were holding to Jewish traditions to be a part of salvation, when they received when they, the circumcision party were beginning to criticize him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began to explain to them and put them into order, helping them to understand that it's not based on the traditions that we uphold. It's based on the work that's been done, which is interesting because when Paul in Galatians is addressing the idea of who has bewitched you, who has told you that it's works of the law which grant repentance and righteousness, Earlier in chapter 2, he makes it very clear that he has to address Peter himself. Paul goes to Peter. In fact, if you, if you would look with me real quick in Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Same Paul, writing to Titus, writing to the Galatian believers. Peter came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Those certain men who came from James is understood as the Hebrew believers, Jewish believers. Again, holding to their traditions. But when they came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? If you claim to follow the true, the true Messiah who has come through the Jewish line but has established for us a new heritage through grace and faith, how is it that you continue to keep these people on the outside because they do not follow the same traditions and works that you do? The most dangerous threats posing churches then and today are the internal threats that invade and infect with false doctrine and false teaching. Back to Titus. Because of verse 11 and 15, again, they're, they're mirrors, they're parallels. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their minds and their consciences have become defiled. It's the same thing in which Jewish rituals, the same kind of things that the Pharisees would claim and, 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 and pound into people's heads, that you have to do these things in order to understand what true repentance is. We see this even with the, the story that Jesus told in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee would stand up for selfish gain, would stand up in, in the prominent places and begin to pray, oh Lord, thank you for all that you've given to me. Thank you for this, thank you for that, but most importantly, thank you that I am not like that person over there. But the tax collector, off by himself, is painted as the picture of righteousness. Because he didn't claim anything for himself. He didn't claim that his traditions and his works were what merited righteousness. He said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is what's at stake. This is what has begun, has not just begun within the last generation, but has been going on for, for numerous years. People coming into the church deceiving, tricking, twisting things. Verse 11, they were upsetting whole families. People were beginning to, to, to follow them. They were teaching things for shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. In fact, in Colossians, Paul addresses a similar thing. Now, I'm going I'm to use a, a quick experiment real quick with you. The Bible says, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. The Bible says that. But if you don't understand what's being communicated, if you don't understand the context of what's being instructed, you can apply that to any numerous things and claim to be godly. In fact, in the book of Colossians, Paul says this, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to certain regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. 
These have indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity to the body, but they are of no value to stop the indulgence of the flesh. There are any number of things that you can twist, and false teachers count on you not understanding the truth of God's word. False teachers count on you admittedly understanding that you are condemned, that we are condemned. If you look at the, the problem of, our, of the devotion of these false teachers, the problem of devotion, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a man named Epimenides, it's really a really fun word to say. You can say it at any point, Epimenides. Who came from Crete during the 6th century. Philosopher. Coined the words, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Isn't it funny that a Cretan, a prophet from Crete, claimed that all Cretans are liars? Just kind of think about that for a second. Think about the irony in that statement. A Cretan claiming that all Cretans are liars. So then are you a liar too? Verse 14, they were devoting themselves to Jewish myths, the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. You see how these two things are parallels, they're mirrors of each other. Because they're trying to live based on their own morals. The problem of devotion is that they were trying to fix themselves morally trying to fix themselves ethically because there was a lot of problems. In fact, in verse 13, Paul says, yeah, this is true. They were trying to fix themselves with their own philosophies, but they didn't understand that their true problem was supernatural. It was their sin. They were trying to devote themselves to all these different ideas, different myths, different, different opinions, different traditions. But again, we've We've seen the mirrors, the picture of opposition, the poison of contention, the problem, the problem of devotion in order to get to the point of correction. In verse 13, Paul tells Titus to tell the believers, to tell the church, rebuke them, call them to repent. for the sake of restoration. Verse 13. This testimony is true. Now there are two possible interpretations of that phrase. One, meaning this testimony is true, being applied to the false teachers. That it wasn't necessarily Paul criticizing or using the criticism from Epimenides to criticize the entire people of Crete, but instead those who were the false teachers. Valid, but I think the second way of interpreting it is much better to understand that there were some people that Paul probably interacted with who fell into these categories. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Understanding that, yeah, these things are all true of us at the core of who we are. And I guarantee you Paul would say the same thing. He does later on, but we get to that later. He says, that's who I was. That's who you are. That's who I am. First Corinthians says, all of these things are things that we, all this whole list of things that we ourselves are naturally drawn to, but such were 
some of you. You have been changed. You have been set apart. You have been called out to live holy, to live in a different way. Verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke those who are false, teach- those who are false teachers. And also rebuke those who are following false teachers, who do not know the true genuine thing in order to know what to avoid. Rebuke them sharply, but it doesn't stay there. It continues. That they may be sound, not in doctrine, not in theology, that they may be sound in faith. See, if you read in the parallel text to Titus, 1 Timothy, First Timothy we see in verse, verse 4, do not devote themselves, or sorry, verse 3, charge certain persons to not teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. If you continue on to chapter 6, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people. But in Titus chapter 2, as we'll see next week, Titus chapter 2, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Why? So that people who are spreading false truths may be given opportunity to repent and to be restored to sound faith. This testimony is true. Rebuke them. Scripture is good for four things. Second Timothy tells us for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If it was only rebuking, it would be only telling them what is wrong. But Scripture is also for correcting, showing them what is right. What must believers then do when these things begin to infiltrate the church, infiltrate our own individual lives? First thing is to elevate your love for God's word. Sanctify them in truth, Lord. Your word is truth. Our hearts can only go as high in worship as they can go deep in theology and the truths of who God is. Evaluate your love for people. This philosopher who Paul didn't even want to name, had no love for these people, only criticism, but they were morally, ethically, and philosophically backwards. Thirdly, you must eliminate the love for yourself. Titus chapter 3. We'll close with this. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves... Paul, Titus, the believers in Crete, you, me, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Believers, elevate your love for God's word. Evaluate your love for people. Eliminate your love for yourself. If you're in this room, though, and you do not know Christ, Christianity, again, is very simple. You need to repent of your sin. And put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation to remember the picture of our opposition. That we desire to be the God of our own lives. We desire for our own personal autonomy. We desire to be the authority of who we are. The authority to do whatever we want to do. And we have the audacity to say to the God of the universe who created us, I want myself to be in control. That brings within us, within our own selves, the poison the poison of sin which comes internally, which is invasive and has infected every area of our lives. Which naturally produces a problem that we try to fix ourselves morally, ethically, philosophically. But our condition cannot be fixed with external sources. It's like putting a band-aid over a bullet wound. Our problem is supernatural. Our problem is sin. What's the point of correction? That you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. That you would repent of your sins and put your faith in Him. And that's it. Simple, yes. Possible for us to do it in our own strength? Not a chance. If anyone in this room or watching by live stream has not put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, I call you to repent. Repent and find freedom. Freedom from sin and the forgiveness of your sin. This testimony is true. Rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith. I want to read to you real quick and then we'll be finished. I'm a small book full of prayers and devotions from early Puritans known as the Valley of Vision. It's called The Awakened Sinner. Oh, my forgetful soul, awake from thy wandering dream, turn from chasing vanities, look inward, forward, upward, view thyself, reflect upon thyself. Who and what thou art, why here, what thou must soon be, Thou art a creature of God, formed and furnished by him, lodged in a body like a shepherd in his tent. Dost thou not desire to know God's ways? O God, thou injured, neglected, provoked benefactor, when I think upon thy greatness and thy goodness, I am ashamed at my insensibility. I blush to lift my face, for I have foolishly erred. Shall I go on neglecting thee? 
when every one of thy rational creatures should love thee and take care to please thee? I confess that thou hast not been in all my thoughts, that the knowledge of thyself as the end of my being has been strangely overlooked, that I have never seriously considered my heart's need. But although my mind is perplexed and divided, my nature perverse, yet my secret dispositions still desire thee. Let me not delay to come to thee. Break the fatal enchantment that binds my evil affections and bring me to a happy mind that rests in thee, for thou hast made me and canst not forget me. Let thy spirit teach me the vital lessons of Christ, for I am slow to learn, but hear my broken cries. Would you pray with me? Lord, to you and you alone be glory forever and ever. Help us to be alert. Help us to take every thought, not just, not just impure thoughts, every, every thought that desires personal autonomy to be the, in control and the masters of our own lives. Help us to take it captive and submit it and to kill it at the cross. To follow you be surrendered to you, to live for you, that we might call others who are living in contradiction to your word to repent and to be restored. I pray that you would do a work that only you can do through your spirit and through the proclamation of your word to transform hearts and minds to follow you and to give you praise which you so rightfully deserve. We thank you that we have the genuine, real thing, and by it, we can know what to avoid. Pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.